0: We're looking at Acts chapter 2 and the Feast of Pentecost and all that happened and what Peter preached. And so we turn to that chapter, Acts 2, and I'll read to you from verse 24. Acts two twenty-four: God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Now Christians and Christianity swiftly came under attack very early on, even in the Feast of Pentecost around the year 30, 50 days after the time the Lord Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. Now, on the Feast of Pentecost, God had poured out his spirit on every single believer. He filled every one of them without exception. And they spoke in a variety of foreign languages, languages they had not been familiar with until that day. And their enemies then jumped on this and told them they were guilty of drunken babbling. So Peter stands then and calls for attention A great hush would have come upon the audience, and he preached to them the first uh, New Covenant sermon. His first defense of their conduct was this event that they'd been caught up in, and he told them that Joel the prophet had actually said that this was going to happen. That in the latter days, that is the days when the Messiah came, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. They were on the spot when a prophecy of God was being fulfilled. Joel had announced that men and women, servants, skivvies, slaves, would also speak and prophesy the word of God. This is exactly what they were seeing. Then he comes to the second explanation of that never-to-be-forgotten day when uh, the Lord poured out his spirit on them. And he told them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it was impossible for death to keep the uh, Son of God in its power. That the great jaws of death could be opened by God. And he could put his hand in and he could deliver from death whoever he chose. And this then was the living Christ, and he was responsible for the three great signs on the day of Pentecost, the rushing mighty wind and the flame of fire that uh, seemed to burn above the head of all the 120 people there, and then the gift of speaking in foreign languages. And Peter then, in order to defend this, turns to the Bible, and he quotes to them from the psalm that I read in your hearing, psalm uh, 16 and verses 8 through 11 as the proof passage that god wouldn't allow his dear son to remain rotting in the grave so the first thing i want to ask you is what did this vast congregation of god-fearing jews that's how they are described by luke what did they know about the resurrection from the dead what did they think when they heard uh, Peter speaking and Peter mentioned the resurrection? In Athens, when he, Paul preached there, well, they mocked him and laughed. Whoever could believe in the resurrection of the dead. But these Jews were different. They were convinced that people weren't annihilated at death. Um, Enoch walked with God and then he was not because God took him to be with him forever. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot and horses. Job affirmed that he knew his Redeemer lived and though worms should destroy his body, yet in his flesh he should see God. In the last chapters of Daniel, the prophet says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame, and everlasting contempt. So, life after death, and even the hope of resurrection, was widespread amongst these most sincere religious people who'd come across the world from all over the Mediterranean basin to worship at the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Or again, There were actual examples of the resurrection in the Old Testament. After the son of the widow of Zarephath had died, Elijah prayed to God, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived 1 Kings 17. A few years later, Elisha raised the son of the widow from Shunammite. And then after Elisha's death, a very curious incident happened. A dead man in the process of being buried in the tomb of Elisha was restored to life after touching Elisha's bones. Now, Elijah was the the chief of the prophets, greatly esteemed and loved. He meets with the risen Christ at uh, the uh, the living Christ at uh, the hill of, of Ascension. And those thousands of, of, of people that were there in Jerusalem, who uh, oh, they each one revered Moses and they revered Elijah. And they would have known these accounts of the resurrections. but Peter doesn't make any reference to them. Or again, the whole country had been buzzing with the mighty acts of Jesus Christ. Everyone knew someone who'd been healed from all kinds of illness and disease. Because of a word or a touch or a thought of Jesus. And they were raised up and healed in a moment. These were the stories that circulated at every well, at every city gate. Uh, And they knew people. There was Jairus who was a a synagogue leader. And his daughter, 12 years of age, had been raised from the dead by Jesus. There was the widow of Nain's son. And uh, he was in the coffin going to the graveyard when Jesus stopped the, the procession and raised him and returned him to his mother. There were a family, a well-known family in Bethany, uh, Mary and Martha and uh, their brother Lazarus. And Lazarus was dead three, four days. And Jesus went to, to where his body was and raised him to life again. And people talked to Lazarus afterwards and quizzed him and asked him what he had experienced. But uh, Peter never referred to these resurrections when he spoke at Pentecost. And then there was a very curious incident that took place at uh, Jesus' death, after at Jesus' death and resurrection. Matthew tells us the graves were opened, and many Of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew 27. So many listening to Peter had met these people. And were awed by the fact that someone who they knew who had died had been brought back to life again. Perhaps some of those very people were there in the feast listening to Peter, as he preached. So I can answer your question and tell you that this vast congregation, listening to Peter on the day of Pentecost, knew much about the resurrection. They knew it from the teaching of Scripture, the hope, the example of people being raised from the dead, and their own experience of seeing and meeting and knowing about people that Jesus had raised from the dead, and even these people that had been raised in the past days, they knew, and some of them had met them. Peter makes no mention of any of these events or personalities at all. So what does Peter say concerning the resurrection of Jesus? Well, he tells us... (laughs) In verse 24, Luke tells us that he was very assertive and positive. God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of him. So here is the totally adequate explanation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God did it. Does it seem to you a strange thing that the almighty, omnipotent God, who is only restricted in anything he does by his own will, that he raised the dead? God couldn't allow death to keep its grip on Jesus forever and ever. God could raise him from the dead. So Peter declares these six words, God raised Jesus from the dead. And you see what he does? He immediately appeals again to Scripture. He's appealed to it once already when he says, this is what Joel the prophet says, and he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And now he appeals to the Scriptures and he quotes Psalm 16. And verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 A psalm written by King David. Verse 25 says, David said about him. David said now, Your great king, he spoke of the Jesus whom you crucified. Your great king spoke about him. And he picks up this prophecy and these are the words that he reads to them, that he has memorized and speaks to them. I saw the Lord... Always before me. Because he's at my right hand. I shan't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. Because you won't abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Now, Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm, but it is not only prophesying and speaking about Christ, it is Christ himself who is the author of this psalm. The I of verse 25 is actually the Lord Jesus, who uh, always did everything that was pleasing to God. His Father says, you're my beloved son. Oh, I'm so pleased. I love you so much. He's the one who who saw the Lord always before him, as he went through life, and as he, today we'd say, as he went on the web, and switched on, then he was conscious that standing at his side, as he fingered the keyboard, the Lord was with him, as he went to seminars, as he went to lectures, as he did chores in the kitchen, every day, as he served uh, his uh, spouse, As he went on a date. He was conscious that the Lord was with him. Always. He was not shaken then by attacks. When people grumbled at him. And criticized him for his faith. Uh, He'd set the Lord before him. And he rejoiced in his spirit. He was always glad. Even when death came. For the joy that was set before him. He was content to know God. And do God. My body also will live in hope my body will live in hope he said knowing that his body was going to suffer whipping and beatings and spear thrusts and nails it was inconceivable to him right to the end that he the God man the incarnate son of God should as to his body be devoured by worms and that that was just the end of his life he wouldn't be abandoned in the grave Every speck of dust, of every Christian, every atom, is precious to the Lord. He loves us so much. And in death, he loves us as he has loved us in life. And this is especially so of the body of Jesus Christ, his own dear son. He was eternally with him. And he has added human flesh now to his divine nature. And he loves the God-man with an infinite, immeasurable, eternal love. And now Peter is growing in authority. He quotes that psalm to them and he lays this passage on them. Brothers, I can tell you confidently, he says, that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we, in standing in solidarity with the 120 then, these spirit-filled men in this multitude of thousands of people, We are all witnesses to this fact. So Peter appeals to them, uh, quoting scripture once again. Telling them that this scripture was fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Not David. David died. David was buried. In fact, they all knew where his grave was. And they, as fathers, had taken their little boys and said, oh, this is where... David, the great king, the one who killed Goliath, you know, I've told you the story. Then uh, his body is here. Uh, This is where he's buried. And if they had removed the stones and the covering and gone in, they would have found dust and bones that were the remnants of David. And so it is not David who is being referred to in this psalm, but the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Everyone knew that, uh, that Jesus was uh, the Holy One. In, even the demons knew this. In Mark one twenty four, the demons cried out and they said, Are you coming to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The, the demons knew this was a messianic title and Jesus of Nazareth bore it. So, Psalm sixty sixteen predicts the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. Now, when the Bible makes a prediction and the prophecy doesn't come to pass, then Scripture wobbles. If men say that's a mistake and that's a mistake and that's a mistake, then all of Scripture then turns from the rock, which it is, to sand the truthfulness of the word of God is dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that he came out of the grave on the third day and vindicated the prophecy of Psalm 16. It was proved to be true, the veracity of scripture, the veracity of the livingness of Jesus of Nazareth. It's interesting to me that... um, Christ was in the grave three days and that the Jewish tradition was that decay set in on the fourth day and that this tradition was accommodated by the resurrection. So this is how uh, Peter understood the resurrection of Christ as a fulfillment of Psalm 16. In fact, this is how all the the apostles understood the resurrection of Christ. Of Christ. Uh, Not only Peter at Pentecost, there's another passage later on in the book of Acts where this Psalm 16 and this prophecy about the resurrection was quoted not this time by Peter, but it was quoted by the Apostle Paul in chapter 13 and in verse 30. And he says what Peter says uh, God raised him from the dead. And then Paul goes on. And this is what he says in verses 31 to 37 of, um, of Acts chapter 13. He says these words. For many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's talking of the great mission of Jesus. Those years where he went round the villages preaching to the people in that province They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. As it is stated elsewhere, and then he quotes Psalm 16 again, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. The refrain is very significant in that passage. God raised him from the dead. It's found four times in the compass of seven verses in verse uh, 30 and verse 33 and verse 34 and verse 37 he says God raised him from the dead God did it he raised Jesus from the dead he tells them and he repeats it and he repeats it because it's the heart of the Christian gospel that's why uh, we're meeting today Paul also quoted Isaiah 55 uh, about the sure mercies of David when well, David was dust and to dust he returned but the sure mercies of David are the resurrection of he who was in his loins great David's greater son Isaiah 53 and speaks of his death and Isaiah 55 speaks of his inheritance and the link between Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 55 is the resurrection. So, I want to ask now the question to you, what does the resurrection prove? Firstly, the resurrection proves the deity of the Son of God. Of course, the li- Jews listening to this Saw that immediately. We killed him. We got rid of him. But God is his Father, and he's telling us God has raised him from the dead. What greater proof could there be that Jesus is the Son of God than his resurrection? Many witnesses in the Bible to the deity of Christ. Many, many, the demons. Mark 5, they say, Jesus, Son of the Most High. The demon in Mark 1, we know you, the Holy One of God. The demons affirmed his deity. A man born blind in John 9, who is given his sight, he affirms in his testimony to his enemies. Jesus is risen from the dead. The disciples, Peter, James, John, all acknowledge that he is God. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Nathaniel says, thou art the Son of God. Matthew, he is God with us. Mark, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, those are the opening words. And 16 chapters are his proof to us, are his apologia to us that he is in fact the Son of God. Luke says he's the son of God and his close friends like Martha, she says, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God. John the Baptist was a close relation and you know how aware we are and critical we can be of our relatives. And yet he said, I saw and bear record that this is the son of God. Even a Roman soldier could say, truly this man is the Son of God. But the greatest testimony to the divinity of Jesus Christ is from the voice of God himself. This is my beloved Son. And God confirmed his words by raising him from the dead. He'd hardly raise a crook or a hypocrite, a Pharisee, a liar, a blasphemer. That's why uh, Romans chapter 1 is so important. You know the great opening words where Paul announces himself as an apostle and addresses them, and he says in verse 3, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and, listen to this, declared to be the Son of God with power where, uh, according to the Spirit of holiness, By the resurrection from the dead. So it's a monumental declaration to us. It's testimony from the most godly and sincere of men and women. From apostles. From demons even. But from God himself. He says, this is my beloved son. And the resurrection is his physical, demonstrative affirmation of the livingness of Christ. He raises him. Up, it's a declaration of his deity Peter closes this sermon in verse 36 by saying God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ so here is our savior Jesus Christ we meet in his name we meet in the name of the great prophet and that prophetic ministry was authenticated by his resurrection why would we believe the words of a man, that they were more than just the words of an inspired teacher, except for the fact that on the third day God raised him from the dead, didn't raise any of the prophets from the dead. We'd trust his word. His word wouldn't be trusted if he, having said many times, I must go to Jerusalem, I I must be put on trial, I must be crucified... And on the third day, I will be raised from the dead. And that phrase, the third day, the third day, occurs all through his ministry in Galilee. And on the road to Jerusalem, he is telling them he is going to be raised from the dead. If that hadn't happened, how could we trust him about anything he said? And then there he is as our great high priest And the Bible says that uh, he now intercedes before God on behalf of us. Well, if he isn't alive, if he isn't living, we have no advocate, we have no mediator in God's presence who is praying for aberyst with sinners, who is saying, I know what that woman is going through. I know what those boys are having to face this week. And Lord, God bless them and help them and keep them. Because he rose from the dead. He lives in the power of an endless life, and that life is a loving life. And it's a prayerful life, and it's a concerned life for every one of his people. Even the bruised reeds, he won't break them. Even the smoking flaxes, he won't snuff them out, because he loves them and he longs that where he is, there they will be also, because. Um, There's a place that He's gone to prepare for us. That He and us will be together for evermore. There's the priestly office of Christ. And then He's the great King, the great protector. I'll be with you. I'll provide all your needs. Nothing shall separate you from my love. Well, How can He say promises like that if He's not alive this morning? All of them utterly depend on his resurrection. His eternal deity is bound up with the fact that he rose from the dead. And that's the great proof then of his divinity. That he is God. That he conquered death. He's greater than our last enemy. And then secondly, the resurrection proves the completion of the salvation of of God. Um, The Christ came into the world... He said, to seek and to save those that were lost. And over and over again, he told them that that meant he had to go to the cross. And that he had to shed his blood for them. That without the shedding of blood, there, there would be no remission. There would be no forgiveness. Because that is the nature of God himself. And uh, so, he, he comes... And against all opposition from his apostles, um, he sets his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. And he comes and he pays the price that our sins deserve. We are far too poor to buy our redemption, but he in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, he laid his life down that he could buy our freedom to be with him forever. He's the Lamb of God. He saves men from their sins if he wasn't God's son. He would just be Jesus Christ superstar. Another noble, self-sacrificing reformer whose life ended in failure. But his life ended in life, in triumph over the grave. If Christ be not risen, Paul says to the Corinthians, your faith's in vain. We're yet in our sins. We are of all men most miserable. There's no hope. But he rose. And he conquered death. The great tight bands of steel that death puts round every one of us and crushes and crushes us and pulls us into the pit. He snapped them like cotton. And freed us from death. God lifted him up and exalted him. And God says, the debt is clear. I'm reconciled to all my people. His blood is efficacious. It's of high value. I'll seat him at my right hand. So that sacrifice then was accepted by God. He said, it is finished. And God said his amen to the words of his son by raising him from the dead. Thirdly, the resurrection enables the Holy Spirit to be poured out by Jesus. In John 14 and John 15, our Lord says, He's going to come, you know. I've been comforting you, but now another comforter is going to come. And he'll be with you, and he'll be with you forever. I will send the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came that these people meeting behind locked doors and afraid came out into the world and stood up before the world and preached in the power of the Holy Spirit to men and women. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That's all you have to help you now through the years that lie ahead of finding a partner and getting married. And doing a job. And taking the responsibilities of parenthood. And sickness. And growing old age. Just the flesh. That's all you have. But that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And the Spirit says to us. You can do all things through Christ who helps you. I'll never leave you. I'll always be with you. I'll make all grace abound to you. Nothing shall separate you from my love. I'll supply all your needs. I'll work everything together for your good. That's the voice of those that are born of the Spirit. That's what happens when God pours out His Spirit on the world as He's pouring it upon us and pouring it upon His people all the world over. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit came to Jerusalem that the men and women of Jerusalem were cut to their hearts. And they cried out, Well, what must we do? Men and brethren, tell us, what must we do? They were under fearful conviction because the Spirit of God was poured from heaven upon that city. We are always praying that the Holy Spirit will come and come on our congregation to convict people and open their eyes illuminating them and giving them new life and we can only pray that because Jesus is at the right hand of God and he says spirit now dear spirit go forth go to Aberystwyth go and visit and change favored men and women in Aberystwyth and he does this fourthly the resurrection achieves the forgiveness of our sins If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for sins. Our sins are not ours only. The sins of the whole world. And if Jesus didn't rise, there'd be no advocate with the Father. There would be no one interceding for us. There would be no mediator by whom we could go to God. We would face God the consuming fire all alone without someone saying Father these are um, my brothers and sisters and they loved me in the years they lived in Aberystwyth and they spoke and they gave and they prayed and they trusted me and they lived by my strength day by day Father let me introduce you to them and we will have an advocate a mediator with God in that day. There, the Bible says, He ever lives. He rose and He ever lives to make intercession for us. And so He seeks the best. He knows what is just the best for the future, for you. And when you pray to Him, as I always tell you, and you ask Him for certain things, He will either give you those things or He will give you something better but if he's not alive my friends it's a fantasy isn't it it's a nightmare isn't it there's no Holy Spirit there's no forgiveness there's no hope in death there's no one at the right hand of God it's an empty place and we are impotent told by God in his word that he has raised us up with Christ and he has seated us at the right hand of God. And none of that is true if Jesus on the third day didn't rise and ascend to heaven. Fifthly, the resurrection achieves the establishing of the church. The church of God. It was the resurrection that transformed fearful men hiding behind locked doors, men who uh, had hurried off and walked the long journey to Emmaus in despair, that all their hopes were dashed. And that life was changed by the resurrection. The resurrection baptized them into a body. The resurrection called them out. The church, ecclesia means called out ones. The church isn't an earthly organization. It isn't a human club it isn't a place for recreational devotional exercises for those sorts of people who need that crutch, it's not that at all church is the body of Christ, the church is that which Jesus speaks of, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it if Christ is not risen well that would never have happened And Pentecost would never have happened. And without the resurrection, the Comforter would not come. There was a day in heaven, uh, 50 days after the death and resurrection of Christ, where Jesus again sat at the right hand of God. The God-man was there, and he spoke to the Holy Spirit. He said, Beloved Holy Spirit, go forth now to Jerusalem. And... Fill my people with yourself. And they were there as he had asked them to be there. They had not withered away. And he comes and he fills them with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. He comes and he fills them with courage and conviction and authority. And a young fisherman can get up and face thousands and he can nail their sins to them and warn them of what will lie before them if they are unrepentant and don't come and trust in Jesus Christ. And he can so speak that people aren't overwhelmed by his oratory, but they are crushed by the power of God working there. Three thousand of them, they come. They say, men, brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be here today. The cult of the Messiah, the Jesuit cult, would long have died if Jesus had remained in the grave. But He rose and ascended. And He has kept us all our lives, the living Christ. And He is here with us today. He's brought you here, and he's given me this message to give to you, and he's applying it to your heart, giving faith where there's doubt, giving strength where there's cowardness, giving you light about the future where there has been darkness. Paul tells the Ephesians, God raised him from the dead. He set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age which to come. He's put all things under his feet, and given him to be head over all things to the church. The body of Jesus Christ, we know where it is today. It's not where Muhammad's body is, or David's body, or... Moses' body is, but it's at the right hand of God. And it's there living, loving, caring, guiding, keeping, meeting with all his people. And so the great change takes place in 3,000 of them. They'd always met on a Saturday. And now the day of resurrection becomes their day. And on the first day of the week they gather And they meet together and they sing his praise and they hear his word. And they sleep in a window at the length of the sermons of the Apostle Paul. And the church has marched on, triumphant. And now it fills the whole world, not a continent, not a country, where there are not believers who are gathering around the book today. It's constantly attacked, the church. It is constantly corrupted and counterfeited. It is fought off false teachers and uh, false heretics and false organizations. But it is still alive. And it is changing the world. And the only reason for that is the living Lord in its midst. The one who rose from the dead. Who comes where only two or three gather in his name. And he sustains the church. Because he lives, the church lives Well, we're just ordinary folk, aren't we, this uh, Sunday morning who gathered us from all our different backgrounds, who brought us together and gave us love for one another and has kept us and helped us through the seasons of our lives, the living living Jesus. That's what it's meant for us to be a Christian. Death couldn't hold him. Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Saviour. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, up from the grave he rose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He rose a victor, o'er the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. Jesus Christ arose. And he gathers us together in the fellowship of the living spirit on this day. Ah, make sure you know this Savior. That you are a friend of Jesus. That you've welcomed him. You've received him into your heart and life. You make sure that this kind and loving one, who's even drawn you again to hear the gospel, that you're not keeping him out of your life. Living Savior, come into my heart. Come today. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Come to me in my need. and you, you pray this prayer until you know he's answered you. Amen. Our loving Heavenly Father, we ask thee now to bless us with conviction and hope concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you that we can say I serve a living Saviour He's in the world today. And that we can say He's in our midst and He's in our hearts and we have Him. Thank You for pouring out Your Spirit upon us. Fill us more and more and more with His graces and help us to live vital, loving lives for You. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.